The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Great to look at God's Word together. Let's pray. Ask God for help. Father, such a challenging invitation from you to us this morning. Um, it's going to be hard, hard for us to believe in some ways. And so we pray your Holy Spirit would come and help us to believe. Lord God, come. You're the one who wins us to yourself. You're the one who creates your own family through Jesus Christ. And so we pray that you would come today and uh, open our eyes to you, soften our hearts towards you, help us believe you at your word, Lord, and uh, let this word have its effect in us. Let it let it form us and grow us and change us, God, for your glory and ultimately our joy in you. And, and also, Lord, for our endurance. Help us as a church to endure uh, with faith in and love for Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So we're continuing through, uh, or continuing with, our study through the book of Hebrews. And our passage this morning asks, asks us a question that we may not feel like answering. It's a painful question. It's the kind of a, of a question that's gonna probe into your heart. So, so here's the question asked by our passage. How do you respond to God personally in the midst of suffering? How do you respond to God personally in the midst of suffering? You're probably familiar with the problem of evil. Um, that's a, a problem Christians especially need to deal with, wrestle with intellectually. It's a problem that asks, how can there be a good, all-powerful God and then there be such rampant evil in the world? And that's an important question, right? Uh, and if you, would like to talk, if you would like to talk with me about that, I would love that. But that's not what we're going to talk about in the sermon today. The, the problem in this passage is a little different. These aren't people wondering whether or not there's a God due to the problem of evil. These are people wondering if following Jesus is worth it due, the, due to the continued difficulty that can bring. They're wondering if following Jesus is worth it due to the continued difficulty following him can bring. These are people getting weary they're getting weary. They feel like they just can't do it anymore. Have you ever noticed that thought run through your mind? I just can't do this anymore. They were getting faint-hearted. That word means something like despondent or uh, dejected or depressed. Uh, it's, a, it's a sorrow and a loss of confidence. Have you felt that before? Maybe you're feeling that today. So we remember from this book that sustained suffering can really test us. And it especially tests our relationship with God. So how are you going to respond to God personally through suffering? Because, listen, we know uh, in comparison with some of you, I haven't suffered at all that everybody's going to suffer. And if you haven't suffered much yet, what do the rest of us have to say to you? Just wait longer. 
okay? How are you going to respond to God personally when that happens? I can't, I can't think of a more important question. And something to, to get right and to get explicit in our minds. And so this passage is so precious. This is God's invitation to you. God's command to you for how to respond to him personally through sustained suffering, even persecution. So I think of this passage kind of like, if you were to imagine a bitter medicine that brings incredible results. There's an aspect to it that's really hard to swallow, incredible claims in this passage. But also there's an aspect to it that if, if you respond in the way God is calling for, it can bring incredible healing. And I think the promise is, if you respond to God according to this invitation of his, it will keep you from getting weary and faint-hearted. It will. You'll have this reserve of strength, even through sustained suffering. So I want to point out, as we work through this together, five aspects to the way God calls us to respond to him personally in the midst of suffering. Five aspects, and we'll just take them one at a time. The first one we're going to see in verse 3. The first aspect is consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Now, we, we see this in Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. But it says consider him. Consider Jesus. That word means to to contemplate, it means to do some serious thinking, it means to meditate, it means to ponder, and to be honest with you, this is really the fix to every problem in the entire New Testament. What should you do? Consider Jesus. Why, why do we come here every Sunday to do this again? Man, because this is what I need. This is what you need. I need to consider Jesus. This is the best thing there is. Everything in this passage builds off this. Consider Jesus. Think about him. Take him seriously. Everything changes. You meditate on Jesus when you take him seriously. One thing to see here in our passage today is to see how he endured constant hostility. He endured hostility. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is Jesus getting from the beginning I mean, he's just born and kings are trying to kill him. He's enduring hostility. Why does the author bring this up? Consider Jesus and all the hostility he endured. Is he, is he trying to make you feel sorry for Jesus? That's not it at all. Seeing Jesus and his life and his motivation gives us courage in our own suffering. Seeing Jesus gives us courage. And so I think of three things to point out, just as we considered the hostility Jesus endured. Number one, we see that he endured suffering with us. He endured suffering with us. Hasn't, been, hasn't that been part of the goal of the author of Hebrews to say, Jesus became just like his brothers and his sisters. He wore literally, actually, physically human flesh. He's totally, truly human he knows what it means. He knows what it means to suffer. In fact, you look at his life and you see his suffering. Come on. He's the only one who knows what it means to really suffer. 
He suffered. He knows. And, and, and part of what the author has said is he's able to sympathize with you. It just, it do, that doesn't mean he could if he wanted to. No, it means he truly sympathizes with all of his brothers and sisters all the time. He's compassionate towards you. You think of the friend you have in Jesus. You know, sometimes you suffer and you think nobody understands. Well, in a way that's true, in a way it's not, but th- th- there's somebody who, who understands. Jesus understands. He knows. See that. Ponder that. His, his compassion gives you courage. You also see not only that he suffered with us, he suffered for us. This, was, this wasn't Jesus just thinking, oh, I'm going to go give this a shot for the fun of it. He came to suffer for us as a representative, as a substitute. And here we see his love, his incredible love that he would care so much for his people, that he would endure all these things in their place for their sake. And it's through Jesus that we're forgiven, that we have access to the Father as children of God. So he suffered with us, suffered for us, and then all you need to see this, he found victory on the other side, didn't he? He found victory. After the cross, the crown. After the cross, the crown. It's always this way for God's people. There's a cross, and then there's the crown. And as you think of Jesus, his compassion, his love, and his victory, it gives you courage because you're following him. As we, you saw this last week, Hebrews 12, 2. That's what we were called to. Hebrews 12, 2. We're called to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And where is he sitting now? He's seated at the right hand of God. Is he suffering anymore? No. It's over. He's won absolute victory. And so he was able to despise the shame for the joy. The, the shame that he, that, he, that he faced, the suffering that he faced, he was able to walk through it, kind of despising it like, eh, it's not that big of a deal because I want that joy. I want the greater thing, the joy of saving my people. You look at him, you see him. You're supposed to take that same attitude. I can walk through this for the joy like my Savior did. Because you know he rose from the dead, he's seated in victory and suffering is over. It will be for us as well. So the first thing, this is how you respond to God personally in suffering. You do it by considering Jesus. You see, this is a, this is a mental exercise. This is a heart exercise to look at him, to trust him. And it's a question you need to ask yourself. When you face suffering, do you doubt Jesus or do you run to him? Do you forget him or do you lean on him? Do you look away from him or look to him? Because that first response, it makes all the difference. Consider Jesus so that you won't grow weary and faint-hearted. Second, you see it in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Oh, man. So the author used first the illustration of running a race, right, to the life of faith. Run the race with endurance. So it's, it's, a, it's a race. It's a marathon. You got you to keep going. You got to keep running. Don't stop. And now in this chapter, he changes the metaphor from running a race to boxing. Any boxing fans? UFC sort of? Eh, okay. Got a handful. 
Well, you can at least imagine it. So Christian, you were running a race. That's an illustration for the life of faith. And now you're boxing, all right? Did you know that? Spiritual boxers, okay. Imagine a boxer who did not realize the fight had started. His hands are down, you know, he's looking around. And his opponent just starts whamming on him before he knows anything is going on. What would you say to that boxer if you're watching this on TV? You'd be like, come on, man. Hands up, fight. Didn't you know? Or imagine a boxer who didn't realize who his exact opponent was. And he's, uh, he's running to the side of the ring, and, and he's yelling at the crowd. Or uh, he's, he's yelling at the ref. And his actual opponent, the one he's supposed to be fighting, is just kidney shots. And you'd be like, you're fighting the wrong person. So this illustration of the foolish boxer, he doesn't know he's in a fight, he doesn't know who he's fighting. Could that actually be a picture of you and me? All our ranting, all our fighting. What are you fighting? Did you know you're in a fight? Look at verse 4. In your struggle against, who are you fighting? Sin. In your struggle against? Sin. Whose sin? Your sin. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. What's he saying? Well, number one, you're in a fight against sin. Why did Jesus come? He came to save you from the penalty and the power of your sin. If you're his, I mean, that's, that's the enemy. He was fighting for you, and he won fundamentally so that you could fight as well. Because of what he's done for you, you can now actually fight sin. What is sin? Let's try to clear that up. It can be a churchy word. What is it? First of all, it's an inclination of the heart, isn't it? Let's start, let's start deep. Sin first is an inclination of the heart that doubts God's goodness. It doubts his word. And so it replaces him with other sources for satisfaction, meaning identity, and everything else. So it's an inclination against the true and living God. How does it show itself? It shows itself in disobedience to God's word. It shows itself in disobedience to God's word. And Christian, if you're a Christian, you know this. If you're not a Christian, I hope you learned this. Your main enemy is sin. And it's your own sin. I'm imagining this audience, it'd be easy for me to be like them. This audience probably thought their main problem was the suffering and marginalization they were facing for following Jesus. They probably thought their main problem was these enemies they had in their lives, causing difficult circumstances. They were probably consumed with how awful this person was or that group was or this situation was. And our author says to them, you are totally distracted against your, when it comes to your main fight. You totally forgot what you're doing. Your fight is against your sin. And leaving Jesus for comfort would be the worst sin of all. Leaving Jesus 
for practicing sin would be the worst of all. And he says, you haven't yet come to blood in your struggle against sin. What are you supposed to do with that? You haven't yet come to blood? A couple of ways to understand this. Number one, your fight, what's the sin he's talking about specifically? Well, this group is influenced to leave their explicit faith in Jesus Christ for the Mosaic law and Jewish religion without Jesus. And why are they influenced to that? Because of the marginalization and persecution they're facing for belonging to Jesus. And so this sin they're facing is a temptation to no longer be loyal to Jesus and his word. Are you going to follow him or not? Are you going to live for him or not? And he says, your fight with this sin, it hasn't resulted in anybody being killed yet. What are we supposed to do with that? You know, sometimes it does result in you being killed. Sometimes it does. There are Christians killed today around the world for being Christians. We could name off country after country after country where it is a legitimate risk for you to get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It might be the end for you right there. It's kind of hard for us to even imagine. It's hard to imagine the gun cocked and aimed at your head saying, deny Christ and we'll let you live or claim him and we will kill you. Talk about a fight against sin. Would you shed your blood there? I hope I would. I hope in God's grace I would say, no way, I'm not denying my Savior. I hope I'd say that. And so, hey, for this audience, right, this happened in the ancient world. It happens today with a change in leadership, more tyranny from different leadership. The persecution can rise very quickly. You have not yet shed your blood. You might. You might. So it's just so sobering for us here in our context to be like, how in on Jesus am I? But then you bag that train up. You know, in a way, it's kind of easy for me to be like, I would die for Christ. Will you kill your sin for Jesus now? Would you kill that sin you're practicing now for Christ? You think you start to work backwards. Right? Think of that practice sin in your life. Ask, ask the Lord to show you. you. You know it's wrong, and you keep doing it. You know, back to that boxing ring. It's boxing you right now. Your hands are down. Your nose is bloody. And if you're honest with yourself, you're throwing more excuses than you're throwing punches. And your heart tells you it would be too much suffering to let that sin go. Do you know what I'm talking about? It'd be too much to let that go. You could lose that relationship or that hobby or that issue or that thing. And your heart tells you, no, I need this. My, my family needs this. We, we have to have this. And God's like, is it in the way? Is it in the way? 
and you think it's too much to let it go, you think you need it, when you finally get so sick of how that sinful behavior denies Jesus, when you think, I would rather take, right, because there's a risk here. If I give this up, then there's this worst case scenario I'm afraid of. Sometimes we don't even voice it, but it's there, we fear it. We think, when you finally get to the point where it's like, you know what, I will risk the worst case scenario in order to stop denying Jesus and how I'm living. When you're finally willing to suffer in order to stop sinning, guess what happens? You start to win that boxing match. You start to win. You start to kill that sin. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter 4. Look how Peter puts it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself. Get prepared. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What thinking? Christ suffered in the flesh. What does that mean will happen for you? You're going to suffer in the flesh. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For, look at this next phrase, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, what's he saying? He's, he's not saying just because you go through a hard time, you quit sinning. That, that's not it. That's not the context here. What he's saying is, look at verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So in other words, if you're willing to suffer to not sin, now you're living for God's will instead of those sinful passions, right? It's the question, how bad do you want it? How bad do you want to be pleasing to Jesus? That's the second aspect here. You think about how we respond to God in the midst of suffering. Uh, the Bible. How, what do you think about this book? I mean, listen, first piece of advice, right? If somebody's really suffering, you got to be gentle with them. I'm not even kidding. We should be gentle with each other, right? We should be gentle. Be gentle with me. I'll be gentle with you. We should be gentle in suffering. But do you see what the guy just said here to people who are suffering? They had their stuff stolen? What did he say to Christians in the midst of suffering? Don't forget, your fight is mainly your own sin. And friends, ironically, that'll actually give you courage to keep going because you realize what this is actually all about. You won't be distracted with things you can't actually control quite as much. You'll be on that path of what God is doing in your life. It gives you courage. Look to Jesus. Remember your fight. Number three, remember who you are. Number three, remember who you are. Look at verse five. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Sons and daughters. In context, sons are emphasized because in the ancient world, sons inherit. So you are children then, sons and daughters who inherit God's kingdom. So we just remember just beautiful basics of Christianity. If you repent of your sin, right? Repent means to turn. You're going this way. You're like, that's the wrong way. I'm going the wrong way. I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn and put my faith in Jesus Christ. And you say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Let me belong to you. I want to be yours. I want to live for you. Save me. And Jesus always says to a repentant heart, yes, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And so you, you trust in him and you're saved and then you realize God's promise to you. It's not just like we kind of let you in the back door, but stay over there. Now, like think of the parable of like the prodigal son. The father runs to you and gives you the ring and the shoes and the cloak, like full-on adoption as a treasured child of God. If you have trusted Jesus Christ from the heart, that's who you are. You're a child of God. You're never to be forgotten, never to be set to the side. Loved deeply by God. This is part of what Hebrews has been showing us. You remember Hebrews 2, 11, talking about the work of the Father and the Son for God's people, Hebrews 2, 11. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So the triune God has decided to sanctify you, to make you holy, to bring, him to, bring you to himself. And Jesus has been sent to do that through his life, death, and resurrection. And so Jesus then, if you put your trust in him, Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister or brother. Don't you love that so much? He's not ashamed of you. He's proud of you. You're his, and he values that. It's a wonderful. You're a child of God. Isn't it easy to forget that in the midst of sustained suffering? This, this was Satan's temptation to Jesus. You really the son of God? He's going to make you do this? Really? Isn't it easy to forget who you are? Friends, be careful. Don't compare. Don't compare. You know what I mean by that? Uh, there's a story in the gospel of John. Jesus says to Peter, basically, you can get crucified upside down for me, man. Okay, and then Peter says of John, what about him? What's he going to get? You remember what Jesus says, basically? I'm summing it up. It's not your business. Jesus has his different story for his people. And if you, man, this is poison. If you look at somebody else who has something that you hoped for or isn't suffering in the way you are, and you get this idea that, why are they loved more than me? That's not it. That's not it. You're a child of God, full on, completely, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. That's who you are. And the amount of your suffering has nothing to do with that standing. But there's a massive implication to this reality. How many of you love being children of God? Okay. If you don't love that, I don't get you. If you I mean, that's, that's gold for the Christian. We're children of God. Okay, but there's an implication. Are you ready? Look at verses 5 to 6, a quote from Proverbs 3. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We're beloved children of God, and guess what that means? God is going to do to and for you. What's he going to do? He's going to discipline you. He is going to train you. 
Look at Proverbs 13, 24. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod, what's that next word? Hates his son. So a father who won't discipline his son, won't train him in the way he should go, what's that father showing? Man, I don't even care about you. I don't even care about you. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Right? Discipline is to, is to take someone to the good goal where they ought to go. And discipline often involves not harm, but hurt. True? Not harm, but hurt. You want to exercise? What are you doing to your muscles? Hopefully you're not hurting them, or you're not harming them. You are hurting them. Because that's how they get stronger. Are, are you... you you want somebody to be a great athlete. You're like, you can do it. I want you to watch more television and eat these donuts. Okay? You got to love yourself. Right? You got to love yourself. Man, that is not how you gain excellence in anything. God loves you as his child. So what does he do? He disciplines you. And guess what he uses to discipline you? Suffering in hard times. Suffering in hard times. That's not all he gives, obviously. He gives so much good, but he disciplines you with suffering in hard times. And, and here maybe is the hardest part. Listen, the Hebrews, the, the audience of this book, they misread their situation, and they, do what, they did what we do. Here's what they were thinking. Look at all these hard times. God must not love me. Look at all these hard times. Jesus must not love us, and he's not worth it. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you're totally blind to the actual reality of this situation. The thing you are using to believe that God does not love you is actually the evidence that he does. Your hard times are his loving discipline. And some of you can sit here and go, man, he loves me. <laughs> I wish he would love me a little less. I'm so loved. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You're loved because he loves you as his child and he's disciplining you. Suffering is not rejection, it's discipline for the Christian. We know that because of who we are. We're children of God. It's going to help you endure through suffering, if you remember God's promises about who you are. So we want to consider Jesus. We want to remember our fight against sin. Remember who we are. We're being disciplined because we're loved. We're children of God. Fourth one is we want to remember whose we are. Remember whose we are. Look at 8 to 10. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, you're illegitimate children, not sons. 
Then the author calls uh, these believers children of the father of spirits. That's what he calls God, the father of spirits. So what does that mean? I think it's probably a a phrase borrowed from the book of Numbers, and I think what it expresses is um, the omniscience of God and the the fact that he's all-knowing and wise beyond compare. He's 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 a wise God, powerful God, the creator God, the, the ultimate father in that way. And so it raises the question, if you are a child of God, just who is it that is your father? What is he like, your father in heaven? You meant to think about this. He's the creator and sustainer of all reality, right? Amen. This is who your father is. He's the judge of the earth. He's, he's infinite in power and wisdom. He's your father through Christ. And so the author here argues from the lesser to the greater. And he has this assumption of how family should work from a biblical point of view. So this is a little hard for us in our day because it seems so abnormal. It should be normal. But here's the assumption he's working from. Kids should have a father. Can I get an amen on that? Okay. Should have a father. An adult male committed for life to love and provide and protect and train his children for their good. To have a father. And that father, if he loves his kids, he's going to discipline his kids. Because he's trying to form them to that place where they can be mature and succeed. Father's discipline. So it's, it's a good encouragement. Hey, Amen. Let's be godly fathers who provide legitimate discipline for the good of our families. Right? Let's expect that this is what we would be like as Christian men. But even as I say that, I realize, man, I mess this up. Right? And some, some of you know, I, I, mess, I mess this up. You're thinking, boy, I, I mess it up, right? You, you relate. You relate. Regret as parents we have sometimes. And the author of Hebrews, he, he realizes this. He says in verse 10, we respected our fathers. They disciplined us for a short time as seen best to them. Okay? So what's he saying? Look, human fathers, even the best of human fathers, we're not perfect and we don't get to do it for long. Kids grow up. It is what it is. But this argument from the lesser to greater, he says to this audience, we respected, we we respect decent dads who gave it a shot, right? We respect that. And we do. We know know that. Generally speaking, man, kids are going to respect a decent dad who, who was there and tried and tried to discipline them. We're like, that means something to us. We, we know it was flawed and it wasn't for long, but we respect that. But you see his point now. If we would respect an imperfect human father who tried but failed sometimes for just a limited time here in this life, how much more would you want to submit to the discipline of an eternal, all-wise, all-powerful, and perfect heavenly father? Do you have any respect for what he's trying to do for you as your heavenly father? Look what, he said, look what the author says in verse 9. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So God is inviting you in your suffering to submit to him. When you suffer in giving up that sin you want, submit to him. When you go through that period of suffering you're not in control of, submit to him. 
Be subject to him. What does that mean? It means to yield to him or agree with him or obey him. If you've ever tried to train or discipline a child, you, you know the difference between submission and resistance. Ever trained a child and got resistance? Continue resistance? That's trouble. Especially if the child's young, you better keep going until you get submission. Or, or you're never going to get it again. And that child will be in trouble. But when you get submission, oh, there's a sweetness, there's a growth, there's a maturity, there's a reconciliation. And so this text is asking you, when God disciplines you with hard times, are you the resistant child or are you the submissive child? Do you want what God is doing in your life? Does this mean we pursue suffering for its own sake? No way, that's not it at all. In fact, can and should we pursue the end of suffering? Yes. But Christian, is God sovereign in your suffering? Yes. And what is he doing? And here's where we kind of disagree with him. Right? Because don't you know better than God uh, what's good for you? I say that in jest. I'm, not making, I'm, I'm kind of making fun of you, but I'm, I'm joining you in this, okay? When suffering comes, it's like, hey, God, let me just remind you of what's best for me. It's not this, okay? And then this text says, who's, who's the, uh, the all-wise heavenly father? Who's the rebellious child? Look at what this text says. Our fathers, verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time, it seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good. So here's the rub for some of us. You and God have different definitions of what is good for you. And now he's gonna tell you what his is. Are you ready? He disciplines you for your good so that you may share his holiness. His holiness. What is God's definition of what is best for you? Holiness, holiness. This is the great privilege of the Christian, that we can be holy as God is holy, that we could be set apart to belong to him, to see his face for who he is, to love him, and to be made like him in his character. We can be holy, and that's what's best for us, and God uses often suffering and difficulty to make us more like Jesus. So we can resist that. And think about it, how easy it is to, I mean, listen, the Bible lets you lament, lament all, all day long. Lord, why are you doing this? I don't get it. This hurts. Have mercy. Okay, lament, do it. You're free to do that. But also, does it ever move to you to bitterness? Does it, does it ever move for you to unbelief? Does it, does it ever move to the, the wrong kind of complaining where you're totally off the rails on what God's actually trying to do in your life, which is to make you holy? And if you've been a Christian for very long, can't you look back and see how God used difficulty to do great things in your life? I almost never hear the testimony. How did you come to Christ? I won the lottery. I got a promotion. I was losing weight. All my relationships were perfect, and I thought, I need Jesus. 
I don't hear that very often. You know what I hear? It all caught on fire. My life fell apart. I saw how I wasn't in control. I saw the, the poison of my pride. I saw I can't save myself. I need Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And I could tell you stories, right? Without certain kinds of suffering, my pride would be too large for the environment. And you're like, man, you don't have that much to be prideful about. I know. It didn't matter. That's the thing with pride. It's insane. And it takes suffering sometimes to show you that and to finally give you some humility. And God values humility. The Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And how is he going to teach you humility? He's going to discipline you. You remember whose you are. And so you submit to the discipline of your heavenly father in making you holy. Friends, you got to pray this when you're suffering. God, heal me, save me, take it away, and make me holy while I'm in it. Make me holy. The psalmist learned this. Look at Psalm 119.67. This is in our Bibles. Psalm 119.67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. And he says of God, you are good and do good. And the implication is, you were good to afflict me because that helped me not go astray and keep your word. See the same thing in verse 71. What a testimony. It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. There's a piece of truth. When you go through suffering and you start losing everything that comforts you and encourages you and keeps you going, all of a sudden you're like, all I have is the word of God. Do you think God wanted to get you there? Mm. Okay, consider Jesus. Remember your fight. Remember who you are as a child of God. Remember whose you are and submit to your heavenly father. Last one, verse 11. You've got to trust his goodness for you. You've got to trust his goodness for you. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. I, I think that's funny because sometimes the Bible is so understated. You're just like, sometimes it seems painful. Yes, it does. And you remember the examples of faith in chapter 11? You remember those people living in caves, tortured. Some of them got sawn in two. Sometimes discipline can seem painful. Yes, it can, rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. He's working for your good. Why do you think he puts peaceful fruit here? Peaceful. I would guess it's because in suffering, it doesn't feel peaceful. It feels chaotic. It feels out of control. And, and to know that God is sovereign, he's working your life, and to try to lean into what he's doing, it gives you a sense of peace. Because 
It's one thing to suffer, it's another thing to suffer without hope or without meaning. And when you have hope and meaning in your suffering, it's still suffering, it's still painful, but there's something there that can help you keep going and there's a sense of peace you can have that God is in control for your good. It's gonna read to harvest of righteousness. What's righteousness? It's God's character in you. It's God's faithfulness to you. It's him keeping his promises for you. Then we just, just a quick, a quick shot of what's gonna come later in chapter 12. The author is gonna encourage these people with a knowledge of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Everything in their lives right now feels like they're in a snow globe, right? They're shaken. He tells them of this kingdom that they have. And think of these promises. I'll throw a few at you. 2 Peter 3.13. According to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our home. That's what's coming. Or look what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He, he, he knew suffering. Look what he said. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light, momentary affliction. Can you say that about your own suffering yet? Is it light? Well, if you look at it, it might be really heavy. It depends what you're comparing it to. But if you compare it to heaven forever, it gets light. Momentary. How long, is, how, how long are you going to suffer? Some of you, you, whole lives are suffering, so much suffering, more suffering than many of us can imagine. It's like, what are you going to get? It's 80 years of suffering. It's a long time in this life. And it's nothing compared to heaven, is it? Momentary. It's momentary. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. And so you have to trust God's good plans for you, his heart for you. But maybe you can't see it right now. Maybe the suffering's too heavy. Well, let's, let's, let's go back to the first point. Consider Jesus. Does he love you? Romans 5, 8. Sometimes this is all you have. God shows his love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, what Christ died for us. And then there's an implication, Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, and how do you know he's for us? Is it because your circumstances are easy? No. How do you know God's for you? Christ died for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us, what? What's he going to give you? Everything. He's going to give all of us everything. But first, he's going to discipline us to make us holy. Amen? How do you do this? Remember your fight. It's against sin. Remember who you are. You're a child of God. Remember whose you are. You belong to your heavenly Father, so submit to him. Remember his good purposes for you. Why? All because you look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. 
the one who endured the cross for the joy of having us, joy he will share with us forever. That's how we respond personally through suffering. Let's pray. Help us do this, Lord God. We think of the suffering, Lord, that many of us are facing or the suffering that we will face one day. It hits us in the mouth. We stagger. We wonder. Lord, we pray today that your word would be written on our minds and our hearts, and we would know how to respond to you, that we would consider Jesus, Lord. Let us look at him, who he is and what he's done. Lord, let us remember our fight. Help us fight our sin. Help us hate our sin. Help us be willing to be inconvenienced or sacrificed or struggle to put that sin off of us. Lord, help us remember who we are. We're your children through faith in Christ. Help us remember who you are. You're our wise father so we can submit to you. And let us remember your good plans for us. Eternal life. Work this in us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.